Welcome to The Mend, a podcast to learn about services and support for victims and survivors of crime sponsored by the Center for Crime Victim Services here in the state of Vermont. My name is Anna Nasset and I am your host for this bi-monthly podcast and show. And today on the show, we have Kylan Veyu and Molly Milliken here from the program Divas. This show was created to take a deeper look at services, organizations, and concepts for victims and survivors of crime. We wanna acknowledge our healing process and provide resources, not only in our state, but for other states as well. And you know that can benefit anybody as they're beginning their healing journey or show you skills on how you can support others. Um, and today we're gonna to have a really great conversation, kind of a little bit of a continuation of the conversation last week we had um, looking at the program Divas, which works with incarcerated women here in the state of Vermont. As always, I like to begin with a trigger warning. Our goal is to create a safe place to discuss topics of healing, but within that we occasionally tell our own stories, bring up sensitive subject matter, or talk about other subjects that might be um, triggering for some people. So I always ask people to listen at their own discretion. As I said, today I have Kylan Veyu and Molly Milliken here um, to discuss Divas, which is the Discussing Intimate Violence and Assessing Support, Support Program of the Vermont Network Against Domestic and Sexual Violence, also known as the Vermont Network. This program provides education support, advocacy, and re-entry assistance to individuals who are incarcerated and detained at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility under the program services contract with the Vermont Department of Corrections. DIVAS provides services in group and individual settings, coordinates supports from the Vermont Network member programs across the strait, and collaborates with the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility, also known as CRCF, administrators, case managers, and program providers. Today, to talk about Divas, I have Kylene and Kylen and Molly. Kylene is a domestic and sexual violence advocate and former substance abuse case manager. She has been working with incarcerated women since 2017 and helping them into, get into the and working in the community to reduce the possibility of reincarceration and re-traumatization. Kylan's role as a transitional services coordinator is focused on serving CRCF residents coming out of incarceration to find permanent housing, basic needs, and connect community resources and other safe trauma-informed practices. And I'm very delighted to also have Molly Milliken here, who is one of two direct service coordinators at DIVAS. Her role is to provide emotional support, advocacy, education, and crisis intervention for survivors of domestic and sexual violence and human trafficking who are incarcerated at CRCF. She is working towards her master's in social work, which she'll finish up this year, and um, is completing her field placement with the Center for Crime Victim Services at DIVAS, working to improve services for survivors of human trafficking who are incarcerated. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having us. Thank you for having us. Sorry, that was a long-winded <laughs> opening. Um, and I have to give a personal shout out. This is very special because I've known Molly since she was 10 years old and <laughs> we reconnected a couple of years ago. So it's very cool to have her on the show. Um, and I'm really excited to get to know you today, Kylan, as well. Um, so I'd love to start off with you two just sharing a little bit about yourself um how you got into this work if you're comfortable with sharing that 
And um, yeah, just a little bit about you and how you came to this role and this um, program. Absolutely. I'll, I'll, Molly, do you mind if I jump in first? Yeah, go first. Um, so hi, my name is Kylan Veyu. Um, I am the Transitional Services Coordinator. I've been working with the Divas program since 2017. I actually started as um, an intern as in my undergraduate field placement through Champlain College. Um, Kira Cryer, who now works for the Center uh, for Crime Victim Services, was my supervisor. And I have just been so lucky to stay um, working in that facility ever since I between undergraduate and then coming back to the Divas program, I worked for um, the substance use uh, counseling program in the facility, which uh, was called Phoenix House at the time. Now it's called Vital Core. Um, so I have been there for almost three and a half years. And I, um, yeah, I, I love working in the facility and have such um, fantastic things to say about the, the women that we serve. And I've had such a exciting year, uh, despite the pandemic, being able to extend our services in the community and, and stay connected to um, people who now I've been working with for quite some time. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you so much. And for you, Molly? Yeah, so um, I'm actually new it, to the Divas team. I started um, as an intern last spring. Um, and then over the summer, stayed in touch with the Divas team. And um, when Kylan went into her full-time position, there was a spot that opened up and they graciously offered me the position. So um, I've been there since September <clears throat> and it's been quite a steep learning curve, but really exciting. And like, I have to echo what Kylan said and is that it, it's been really like an incredible experience working with the women. Um, not my first time being at the jail, either. I had interned with Vermont Works for Women when I was an undergrad. Um, and I got into this work <clears throat> um, starting all the way back like in 2010, um, being um, interested and personally connected to domestic and sexual violence um, through uh, family and um, friends and understanding how um, deeply it impacted my own personal community. Um, and so then from there, I just started volunteering at different sexual violence organizations and kind of over the years developed into something bigger. And now um, here I am and only like four months into this job. Um, feels like it's been a lot longer, but it's been a really great experience so far. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for the work you're doing as you two were just talking and like, you know, rattling off the different programs in our just sitting here going, we have so many incredible people working in our state and so many amazing organization and so many just really incredible women doing such amazing things um, for our state and for others. So, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's good to be a part of it and be here with you all. <laughs> yeah. um, so let's start by having you share um, how and when Divas was started. You know, I gave a quick little summary of what Divas is, but just kind of what Divas is. Um, what services you provide and the impact you have seen in the state of Vermont. Absolutely. Um, so I can do a little bit of history of the DIVAS program. Um, so DIVAS is a project of the Vermont Network. It started um, in the iteration that we know it now in 2011 when the women's uh, incarcerated population moved from uh, the Northwest Correctional Facility in 
St. Albans down to CRCF. Um, but it actually, those services have existed um, in women's facilities since uh, all the way back in the 90s when women were being held at CRCF when it was a men's facility. Um, other, other iterations of the program existed when the women were at the Dale Correctional Facility in Waterbury, all the way down in Windsor. Um, and at that time, other um, local network programs um, had stepped in. And then we were lucky enough to have this office created in 2011 when um, the network sort of created it as its own project and um, standalone vision. Um, and ever since then, we've had you know a number of different um, coordinators that have come in and out, but um, on a daily basis, our services, like you said, include um, group educational settings for people to understand, um, you know, what domestic violence is, what sexual violence is, what human trafficking is, um, how it in intersects with their life, um, the impact on your body and brain, um, and understanding how to navigate all of that trauma while also being incarcerated, which is uh, incredibly challenging. Um, we also offer one-on-one -on -one emotional support um, and a variety of different group settings as well. We have done yoga and art and we've had guest speakers. We have done movies. Um, we try to keep things uh, as fresh as we can. It's been definitely been a challenge because of COVID, but um, uh, we also collaborate with all the other providers in the facility, uh, the Kids Apart program, Vermont Works for Women, Mercy Connections, uh, Vital Core, working with the caseworkers in um, release planning as well, safety planning, and trying to make sure that people have sort of the best opportunity for when they're leaving the correctional facility. Awesome. So doing whatever you can to help them really break the cycle that they're in and be set up to, to grow and thrive within our state. Yeah, Kylan, I'm hearing you like list all these things that we do. And like, I know that we do those things because I do them every day at work. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> um, are there programs like Divas in other states? That's a really good question. I actually was doing some research for this on that subject, and I wasn't able to find anything that sort of exists as its own standalone office. I had heard a little while ago that I know that Divas was the only program like us in New England. I'm not sure about other states, but what I would assume is um, that it sort of follows the same history that Divas has, that there might be a local agency that um, might hold groups or office hours. But from what I understand, we, as far as I'm aware, we're the only office like ours that I know of. <laughs> Awesome. So hopefully you can be an inspiration to other states as absolutely. And we also, so often do here in Vermont. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, trailblazing in so many ways. Um, I also want to just make note of the fact that we only exist in the women's correctional facility as well, and that the other local network programs do have um, collaboration with men's facilities in all other parts of the state. Awesome. Yeah, so if you're from a different state listening, um, get this organization started up in your state. Um, can you share with us about working with um, incarcerated survivors and some of the data around incarcerated survivors? Absolutely. Go for it. Yeah, I was just gonna, um, just as an overview of understanding incarceration rates in Vermont, as of 2018, um, Vermont incarcerates people at a rate of uh, 328 people per 100,000, which is less than half of the national average, um, which is fantastic, but we still incarcerate people at a really, really high rate just for the size of our 
population of a state as a whole. Um, over the years, I have been a part of the DIVAS program. I would say the number of incarcerated women hovers right around 140. Sometimes um, that has gotten pushed all the way up to 200. Um, and then because of COVID, the numbers are actually a, a lot lower, which I'll, I'll explain a little bit more later. But um, in 2018, Divas put together a survey that um, sort of asked women to obviously voluntarily um, provide information for us on when um, and if they've experienced or witnessed domestic or sexual violence or human trafficking or some intersection of the three um, throughout their lifetime and sort of understanding how those instances of violence were often correlating with when people were intersecting with the criminal justice system and first becoming incarcerated and um, so what we also saw sort of anecdotally is that the earlier those things were happening, the longer people spent in the criminal justice system as well. Um, and from our data that we pulled about, our understanding is that about over 90% of the women who are incarcerated at CRCF have experienced or witnessed domestic or sexual violence or human trafficking or some combination of the three. Um, out of everyone that was surveyed, which um, was about I can't remember the exact number of how many people we surveyed. I used to have it right in my head, but um, only four women reported no history of sexual violence and only three women reported no history of domestic violence. So um, it's safe to say, I think that almost everyone uh, that's incarcerated at that facility has um, some experience with it and will come in contact with our program at some point. Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Um... So what do we need to do to shift that? I mean, it's like, it's like, yeah, I mean, where do you even start with that? It's like, I mean, I, I don't know if many people know what ACEs is, but maybe you could kind of explain what ACEs is for people. Cause I think that plays a big factor in what leads to incarceration, but like, how do you all even approach like your work <coughs> and helping people, but also look at it larger as to like, how do we not have the situation to begin with? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I guess just like a brief summary of ACEs, um, it <clears throat> stands for Adverse Childhood Experiences, and it looks at a number of different factors that um, can impact a person's likelihood of um, certain outcomes in their life, whether that's substance use, incarceration, um, domestic violence, sexual violence, mental health issues, trauma. Um, so the when you're um, under the age of 10, if you've experienced um, seeing violence in your home, a parent who's addicted to a substance, um, some sexual violence or sexual abuse, um, those experiences lead to increased likelihood of substance use, criminal, uh, criminal behavior, or um, other behavioral issues, mental health issues uh, later on in life. And so when you look at like the ACE scores and DIVAS doesn't do ACE scores because we're not like a clinical program. Um, but if, if you did look at the ACE scores of our program participants, they would be incredibly high. Um, meaning that they're each one of our um, DIVAS participants is kind of like, I don't want to say predetermined because that's not fair, but I, I want to say um, their increased chances of interacting with the criminal legal system are pretty high. Um, and so 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's tough too when you start looking at like the cycle and the system of it, because then once a parent becomes incarcerated, you look at most of our um, participants and they're all moms. Um, and so if they have children who are in DCF custody, those kids um, are already a part of a system that is like increasing their chances of continuing that cycle. And so um, it is hard to kind of look at this and not get overwhelmed by the enormity of it. Um, but, you know, I think when you break it down to working with individual people and their stories and their resilience and um, their desire to, you know, take care of themselves and their kids and their families, um, that's kind of like what inspires me to go to work every day, you know? So it doesn't feel as hopeless when you're working with an individual. Awesome. Thank you for yeah, sharing your thoughts and explaining that for our listeners. Um, what are your thoughts about the experience of working and understanding how people live in a correctional facility and how that environment is so counterintuitive or counteractive, sorry, counteractive to healing and to being able to come out of some of the systems that they're in? Absolutely. I think that something that I don't know if everyone would understand always the experience of being incarcerated and that the, the physical building itself and the experience of being incarcerated is a trauma in and of itself. Um, the, you know, being locked into a room, um, all the doors are really heavy metal and it's constant. Uh, there's a lot of slamming, um, yelling, you're, there's a, very little personal space. A lot of times the women are sharing a room with at least two other people, sometimes up to five people in a room. Um, the lack of communication with the outside world, um, strain that it can put on, you know, relationships and family members um, and strip searches, room searches, all of those things are traumas in and of themselves um, and mimic a lot of the um, sort of power and control dynamics or um, experiences of being in a violent relationship or being trafficked. Um, and as those all get exacerbated and bring up um, all the things that Molly's talking about of like really younger childhood traumas or things that were happening pre prior to incarceration, um, it can be, it becomes incredibly overwhelming for the person um, just to exist in that building. Um, and something that I think that we work really hard uh, in the Divas office is to try and create a space that is separate from that. Um, I, a lot of our like physical design of our office and, um, you know, obviously body language, the way we interact with people um, is the sort of, I think, pause that people get from being in other parts of the building, being surrounded by other people, being triggered by other people who are going through something simultaneously. Um, I think all of that is how we try to counteract that, um, those other um, triggers in the building. And something that I should have mentioned before actually is something unique to the DIVAS program is our confidentiality policy. We're the only program in the facility that has crisis worker privilege. So something that I think creates even more emotional safety in our program is knowing that people can come and speak about whatever it is they have to, um, you know, whatever it is that they're going through, if it's current or past or worries about the future. And um, we keep everything uh, confidential in our office other than if a child is being harmed or neglected. Um, so, I think it's 
sort of well known that if you're experiencing all of all of these simultaneous traumas, um, that we sort of can be a uh, a space to yeah to have a pause from it and have someone who listens and sees you as a person outside of being uh, an inmate or a number or another incarcerated person in the building. Awesome. Yeah. And I would love to add to that too. I think it's um, part of kind of the experience uh, for folks being incarcerated is also the locality of the prison itself. I think it's like, um, it doesn't, a lot of people don't realize that the, the prison is right smack in South Burlington, um, right off of Route 7 um, behind Shaw's and Walgreens. Um, and it's um, just like the low, like the physical infrastructure of the building is um, kind of right in the like regular flow of everyone else's daily lives. Um, and it's mm. not really removed. So I think that's interesting too, when you're thinking about like the facility being um, not adequate to house the women um, and what kind of options are there for it to expand. There really aren't any because of the, like the pre-existing infrastructure around the building itself, mm -hmm. which, yeah. Do you think it's better or, or worse that it's actually located right in the city versus, you know, I mean, a lot of times you see prisons, you know, far out in the country, this type of thing. Um, yeah, do you, what do you think that effect that has on incarcerated women? That's an interesting question. I think in some ways it's probably beneficial in terms of like access to other resources. Um, you know, the bus line is right there. They can literally like walk to a grocery store or um, what have you. Um, and so being kind of like central to Burlington is probably like logistically pretty helpful. Um, in terms of like, I think, I think a lot of times incarcerated people are, since they're incarcerated, they're out of sight, out of mind. And um, it just kind of speaks to the fact that like, you know, we don't necessarily, like as Burlingtonians, we don't really notice that the prison is right there. And it, it is just like a bunch of people who are incarcerated, whose lives have been like dramatically and forever changed are living right there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, that's really true. And I'm glad you shared the location of it because I'll be honest, I didn't know. I mean, I don't spend a lot of time in Burlington, but I think that is for a lot of people, like they don't recognize that. And so it's not part of their radar. They don't have to think about it, um, but we really should be thinking of all of these people. So thank you. And that it's the, sorry, just, I'm also, thank you for saying that Molly. It sparked the, my point of, um, it's also interesting that it is the only women's correctional facility and it's located in this one little corner of the state, which can be really challenging for family members, um, you know, with visitation and trying to get kids up to see um, their moms and things like that. Um, you know, it's really centrally located to a lot of resources, which is fantastic, but it's really far away from Bennington or from Brattleboro or people coming all the way from the Northeast Kingdom where that sort of transportation and things are not as accessible to get to uh, visiting a loved one. Absolutely. That's a really good point. I mean, we might be a small state, but I don't know about y'all, but how often do we actually go down to Brattleboro or Bennington? Um, yeah, never. You know, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And even in the work that we do before the pandemic, like if we were at a conference, like there's rarely people from down south that come up because it is, you know, it's, there is a logistical challenge to that. Um, and especially like you said, when it comes to transportation. Um, yeah, that's a really good point. So thank you for making that. Mm -hmm. Um, one thing I was really interested to talk about was the trauma to prison pipeline. We started to touch in on that. Um, 
And so could we just kind of talk about how this, how the, the trauma to prison pipeline kind of creates this revolving door um, for incarceration um, for women? Yeah, absolutely. Kylan, um, well, yeah, go for it. I think you should start. Okay, yeah. Um, so I know, as, as Molly was saying, as when we think about the way that all of these intersections of mental health, substance use disorder, um, trauma, the criminal justice system, there are a lot of compounding factors to every single person's life who's incarcerated. Um, and they have really long, complex histories and family systems and um, trying to trying to re-enter the community. Um, I don't think that people realize how challenging it is to get out of jail. Um, I think getting out of jail is, it's something that I could never possibly do successfully, I don't think. Um, when people are leaving, there are a lot of commitments to meeting with a PO, um, maintaining a job, maintaining housing, um, often attending substance use treatment, getting to the clinic every day. If there are parents with DCF involvement, you have to be keeping up with that caseworker. Sometimes you're expected to be in therapy. Um, all the while you're trying to get a job, keep paying rent, rebuild relationships with your family. Um, and then compartmentalizing this massive trauma that you had in your life of having been incarcerated and locked away for however long. Um, and trying to keep up with all of those responsibilities um, with the alternative hanging over your head of going back to prison, um, if you're unable to keep up with even one of those is enough to, to trigger someone into this fight or flight response that we always talk about um, that it can become so overwhelming to try and um, sort of rebuild your life that it becomes impossible. Um, and then when people re-enter the criminal justice system, those re relationships with family are strained again, you're re-traumatized because you're re-entering the facility. Um, you know, whatever was happening before um, is not gone and it will still be there the next time that you have to get out, um, possibly with you know, maybe you were charged with something new and just the way that all these factors build on each other, um, the longer people spend in this system, I, my heart breaks that it's really hard to see people escape it after a certain point. There are people that Divas has been working with, not in just my time being there, but I mean, for like 15 years, there are people that I, um, you know, connect with and it'll be the first time that I've seen them, but they've been to every other correctional facility in the state and, um, just struggle with getting basic needs met. Um, and yeah. that's something that all of those intersections and ACE scores um, ends up, I feel like setting people up for failure. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, as you were listing off everything that people had to do, I mean, my head was thinking, well, that's a full-time job as it is. And then you're like, and they have to get a job too. I'm like, my, like, yeah, it really is just setting them up to to repeat that. Absolutely. And, and when we think about how, like, I struggle some days just to, like, get myself up and to work on time, and I don't have any of those responsibilities on top of it. And if I'm late for something, I'm not going to be incarcerated for it. And, like, that's a real possibility for some people. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think we all do that, and we're all working from home right now. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, that's what yeah. I was going to say is like, I think too, if you're not involved in that, um, that cycle or that system, that revolving door, you're not going to be under the microscope in the same way. And so your freedom to mess up is a lot more. Um, and 
yeah, I think also, um, you know, it's important when we're talking about the, uh, oh, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> um, yeah, like the, Kylan, you should just jump back in. That's okay. I, yeah, I was going to say, and something that we, that there is research that um, I won't pretend to quote because I don't know it off the, you know, uh, off the top of my head. But what we know is that when the brain is traumatized in that way, it's not, you can't, your memory can be impacted. Prioritization is not the same. Um, if people are freezing and dissociating and sort of having these trauma responses as they're trying to do all this stuff and it looks like they're just doing nothing or um, you know, they missed an appointment because they didn't write it down because they were triggered by something that they just saw in the community. Um, all of these sort of like behavioral, um, I'm putting air quotes around that, <laughs> behavioral issues that we think are stemming from, you know, criminal behavior or, uh, you know, quote unquote laziness or an unwillingness to engage with the community is oftentimes really not the case. And it's people who are, um, like I said, just struggling to get their basic needs met and not yep. return to the correctional facility. Okay, yeah. Yeah, got it. I, that's what I was gonna say, I lost my train of thought. But yeah, I mean, a lot of these things, uh, these trauma responses can just come off as behavioral issues, um, mm -hmm. which is so, uh, is, is something that can be like so misunderstood. Frequently. Absolutely. I mean, that's something I actually talk about that a lot when I'm presenting. And that's for like, from a victim of crime perspective, you know, I talk about like, you know, understanding like your coworkers and stuff like that, that like, you know, if they're missing a lot of work, or they're super distracted, or, you know, they're, you know, they can't figure things out, like there might be something else going on there. They're not just lazy. Mm -hmm. um, that's not for everyone, but definitely for myself, like I've had to really learn that and like, oh, yeah, I'm not okay all right, that makes sense now. Like, that's why I'm behaving in this way, or that's why I need to function in this way. But like you said, I don't have to go to all of these meetings and appointments. And if I don't go back to jail, and I'm very fortunate within that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, all of us are, are so lucky to, you know, if I'm struggling with something like that, I have people and coworkers that I can lean on where I go, you know, I'm going to check out, I'm going to take a mental health day. And that's not an option for people who are on supervision. Yeah. yeah. And the other thing I'll say too, is that this isn't um, kind of like the trauma to prison pipeline that you're talking about, Anna, is not, you know, the event of one traumatic event in somebody's life and then they go to jail because of the results of that traumatic event. This is a lifetime of traumatic events starting often from the ages, like very, very, very young ages. So um, that is a cumulative effect. Um, and what we might think of as something that is the most traumatic event to have happened to somebody might not be what they think is the most traumatic event. And that just builds and builds and builds throughout their lifetime, the compounding mental health issues that come with each of those traumatic events. And then the substance use potentially on top of that to cope with all of the trauma. Um, and that's what can lead to like gender survival crimes, like sex work or trying to, um, I don't know, like, yeah, you're not able to work. You're not able to support your family in a way. So you're, you know, um, finding other ways to meet your basic needs. Mm -hmm. Right. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah, robbery or theft in order just to like, stealing just to get food um, is something like, exactly what Molly's saying, just those survival crimes of, you know, this is the only way I know how to, to take care of myself. And the, um, and this is 
we could do a whole other episode on this, but just the way that the community does set up so many barriers in ways that I, they don't always realize um, to, you know, accessing jobs, accessing healthcare, um, affordable housing. Um, the state, as we know, like there is just a lack of housing in general. There is not the physical infrastructure for people to be living somewhere um, mm -hmm. outside of um, that's financially accessible to them, um, which is how a lot of these get these cycles get perpetuated. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Vermont for the most part is a very rural state and, and there's, you know, a lot of wealth disparity here. And, you know, I live, I live in an area where, you know, pre pre COVID um, there were plenty of jobs. In fact, there was always so many jobs. There wasn't enough workers. Why is there not enough workers? Because we don't have affordable housing. Why don't we have affordable housing? Because it's an extremely wealthy area. Um, you know, and there aren't really services to get people to the grocery store and all of these things. I mean, we do have a lot of good services in my area, but it just, you quickly see how the community is not set up. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, we could do another show on that. Maybe we will. <laughs> <laughs> um, totally switching gears. I do want to talk to you all a little bit about, um, the report that was released detailing the sexual assault history at the Chittenden Regional Correctional Facility. Um, what is your response to that report? If you could tell people a little bit about it. Um, Amy Messier talked a little bit about last week as well. So um, yeah, if you could just kind of share with us your thoughts um, on that and how you all have responded as an organization and what needs to be done. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So for anyone who doesn't know, there was a, uh, an investigation, a third party investigation following an article that came out in the seven days um, about sexual misconduct within the facility um, and sort of a really long history of some pretty egregious things that were happening both uh, in the facility and in the field um, with people who were on supervision. Um, I think our work has and continues to support survivors in and out of the facility. Uh, what that looks like for us is that we have a trauma-informed practice and a victim-centered approach. And we use the empowerment model to um, have our service users guide all of our actions. Uh, we follow their lead on any sort of advocacy or support that they want and um, follow their lead on how they want that to unfold. I think uh, the Divas team is really excited to see these recommendations and hopes that uh, the department finds a way to implement them in a way that does serve survivors um, first and foremost. And I think the other thing I'll say is just that like we are a really small office, Molly and I um, and our other co-coordinator, Tom, and our administrative coordinator, Honora. Um, the four of us run basically a statewide program sometimes. So it can feel really small in such a bigger system. Um, but I think we've been really adaptable and flexible to changes before. And I'm, I'm looking forward to um, new sort of systematic uh, implementations to find new ways to support survivors um, in a way that maybe our office doesn't feel like the only place that they feel heard and seen and that they can feel um, safe in a building and a system that is really not built for um, survivors. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like, you know, you have to be victim centered and you have to let your victims and survivors drive, drive the car and follow what they want and what they need. And it sounds like you all really have a program that's doing that, especially in an environment that is 
completely the opposite of it. So <laughs> I really applaud you on the work and seeing how that unfolds for you all, like in light of this report and how it informs your work moving forward. Absolutely. And a huge part of our work also um, that we, that I didn't really talk about in sort of our direct services, we do offer like training components as well. Um, part of our contract with the department is to do trauma-informed care training with um, corrections staff and administration in understanding ways that, you know, procedures and things that unfortunately have to exist in the department the way that they do um, can still have that same sort of victim-centered trauma-informed approach um, to, I mean, alleviate some of the trauma that is going to happen with becoming incarcerated. Absolutely. That's awesome. Um, as we're starting to wind down, I did really just was curious, you know, can you share the impact of COVID-19 and the pandemic on your work? Um, you know, Molly, you just joined during this. So like that's, it's a lot. Um, so how it's affected your work and the impact on survivors of violence at the Chittenden facility. Yeah, I mean, I can, I guess my normal is kind of operating in a pandemic, which is interesting. Um, but we, I started um, as a remote pro service provider doing services over the attorney line. Um, and then a few weeks later, we were allowed back into the facility um, to provide our services almost in full, um, which still looked like one-on-one -on -one support, but um, our regular like support groups um, have been limited. And so um, really we've been focused on our like one-on-one -on -one support with people because that's kind of where our capacity lies at the moment. Um, but we have been kind of in and out of the facility dependent on um, COVID um, since September, um, now been out twice. So that definitely comes with challenges, especially now we don't have access to the attorney line. So we're coming up with like creative ways to get in touch with people and um, maintain like some semblance of support if we do have to leave again. Awesome. Have you found that having to shift to more one-on-one -on -one versus group setting, has that been beneficial for the incarcerated women? I mean, I would say it depends um, because of the different needs. I think like um, our coworker, Tom was pointing out that the needs of people during the pandemic versus before are different um, because they are needing more like um, kind of immediate or emergent care to like help them meet their basic needs when they get out versus like longer term support in the facility. Um, so in a way it's actually been kind of helps them meet their needs um, at that time. Okay. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And Molly has done such uh, such an incredible job coming on in the pandemic and being able to pivot sometimes on like a moment's notice to entirely changing the way things operate in the facility. Um, it's been a very challenging year for us, um, I, trying to find ways to support people in a confidential way as well. Um, something that has been, I guess, a, a plus out of like I said, I don't want to sound like we're capitalizing on a pandemic at all, but um, we were given the opportunity Silver over the summer lining. through, what was that? Silver lining. <laughs> Silver lining. Yes, yes. Yeah. Um, we were given the opportunity uh, to work with uh, a HOP grant that allowed our services to exist in the community, um, sort of backtracking with um, everyone who was released right at the beginning of the pandemic. In March, we saw about half the facility released in a number of weeks, which is fantastic because 
you know, COVID in a, such a small confined space like that could have been really, really detrimental. Um, so there was a huge push to release a lot of people back into the community. But since we didn't have access, we had to do a lot of backtracking to figure out like, where did people go? Do they need the things that we normally would have been providing for them in terms of mm -hmm. safety planning, housing, getting you connected to your local resources. Um, and since then through some more CARES Act funding, um, I actually have been working full-time in the community instead, um, staying connected with people who uh, have been released, are coming up on releases, um, which I have been so grateful for. It is something that um, I have felt really strongly about in this program for a long time, that that connection that you make with someone in the facility and like the relationship building that we do with our service users doesn't have to just end when they leave. And um, I think we do a lot of work to build like trustworthiness and mm -hmm. um, uh, safety in the relationships that we have with people. And I think just having someone in the community that they know that they can call um, and rely on and I'm still confidential and um, that the whole Divas team is still backing them even um, once they're not in the facility anymore. Awesome. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the interesting thing is it's like the silver lining is it's amazing that half of the women were released. It's great. Um, you know, these things that would never have happened before, like the swiftness of how we've had to just navigate and pivot um, is really amazing, especially like in our work where things can take a really long time to get change and implement new things. It's like, okay, we're just doing it. Um, it has been really amazing. So I applaud you all um, just in, yeah, how you've been able to roll with that and really serve people. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so we're kind of winding down here. Um, I told you the time would go really fast. <laughs> Is there anything else you two would like to share today that you feel like, um, we haven't covered. I think like, you know, we covered a lot. I think I kind of said a lot of the things that I was hoping to talk about, but I think just something that I always want to come back to um, is the, you know, I think we can like lose track of the fact that when people are incarcerated, they are, they are still people, you know, they have like full, complex, interesting, important lives, you know, their parents, their god grandmothers, their um, friends, and, um, you know, we can have this belief, you know, that they committed a crime, that they did this thing that is, you know, like bad, according to society and like our norms. Um, and, however they still you know and this may sound cliche but like deserve a level of dignity and humanity um that we all that we all deserve and so i think just kind of making sure that people don't forget about them <laughs> um you know feels important absolutely yeah and like i think yeah to echo molly's sentiment and sort of i know i said it at the beginning but i um i care so deeply for so for all of the women that I've had the pleasure and the opportunity to work with and um yeah they they are like funny and kind and joyful and are very talented like artists and poets and have so much more um than I think yeah that that stigmatization of um being a criminal quote unquote um puts on them yeah they're human, just like us. We're all humans. We're humans just like them. Like, that's the thing is, yeah, we really, I mean, yeah, I think that it's really important to, to realize that and not take, not 
play into that stigma and yeah, realize that there's people all around us who are needing help and needing services and needing just to feel cared for and loved um, to shift the cycles. Absolutely. So thank you. And I, I want to end, I do want to end on a positive note, but I just think if there was something I could plug um, just uh, a plea, I think for, um, you know, accessible, like long-term trauma care um, to address these cycles is sort of, I see it as so necessary for our state and something that um, exists in so many little pockets, but um, sort of making that the, the, the forefront of, of care, I think for these women is so important. And it's been a really challenging couple of weeks for the Divas program. We, um, a number of women who were incarcerated this past year, um, unfortunately have passed away and sort of processing, um, you know, what that means for us as a state and what communities can be providing for people so that that never has to happen um, for someone leaving incarceration again. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. And yeah, I couldn't agree more. Like long-term trauma care. Absolutely. Yeah. Just come on. We need to do that. So yeah. Thank you. And I'm so sorry for your loss. I'm yeah, that's a lot to, to process. And I know that you all will keep doing the incredible work you're doing um, to help prevent that in the future. So yeah, thank you. Um, So it's been my joy to have Kylan Veyu and Molly Milliken here today. Thank you so much for being here to share with us about Divas. Um, if you would like to get a hold of them or have any questions, you can email them divas at vtnetwork.org. Um, I always like to close the show with like just a positive sentence or like thought from each of you. Um, do you have something you'd like to share as kind of a parting note? Oh my gosh, I feel so put on the spot. Um, <laughs> I sent you the script. <laughs> yeah, no, um, I think yeah, just going back to that that sentiment that like w- we are all like we are all community members, and it is um, it is my joy and my honor to be able to serve um, the women in essentially their temporary home. Like they welcome us into their lives every day, and um, I will always feel grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I also want to say, you know, I, I feel really lucky to, um, to work with them and hear their stories and pretty honored that they are willing to share with me and trust, um, trust in me. Um, and that feels like a privilege. So. Awesome. Well, I can see why they do. You all are both just so wonderful and gracious to be here and share all that you're doing. So thank you so much um, for joining us. And for everyone listening, if you have any questions or thoughts, you can always email me, Anna at standupresources.com. That does it for this week. I'm your host, Anna Nassett on The Mend. Uh, Join us again next time. Thank you and be well. Thank you.